I know that y'all pay me for long sermons, so I'll do my best to string this out as far as I possibly can. Uh, I wouldn't want to disappoint you, and uh, so I'll just talk really slow. And uh, I stood here, and the Lord changed the message. The Lord had just given me one quick picture. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll just begin with verse 1 here in just a minute. Normally, as I build into this passage... I go to Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, and talk about where God shared with Israel that they were going to be a nation of priests, how they were a peculiar treasure before God, and how he set all of the tribes of Israel to be be priests, and how that uh, was supposed to look like, what it was supposed to look like. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he said, this is what I'm going to speak over this nation, and this is who they will be. Because we know the difficulty that occurred. We know about the building of the golden calf and how out of that, Levi became the only nation that could be the priest's nation. And so the others were in that some way disqualified from being nations of priests. We also read in Matthew twenty-one forty-three, where God tells Israel, because of their rejection, because of their refusal to accept him as the Messiah, he says, I'm setting aside this stone and I'm replacing it. I'm going to create for myself a nation that's never been a nation before. I'm going to create for myself a people that hasn't been a people before. So we begin to recognize in that moment there was a shift in God's heart, recognizing that Israel would never lose its place in his heart, that Israel would never be replaced as God's chosen people, that there was a season, a time that was fixing to be different because God was going to raise up a people who would be obedient. He was going to raise up a people who could be grafted in to that branch and produce fruit that he had intended to come from the nation of Israel. So we know the beginning, what he's talking about there in Matthew 21, 43, he's talking about a new nation of people that had never been a people, and he begins to identify that in this chapter in 1 Peter, that we would be a nation of priests. I tell you what, let me just read it first. Let's go with me to verse 9, and then I'll back up to the beginning of the chapter. He says, now to the church, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So we recognize here that God is saying, I have shifted I've now created a group of people who are going to be mine. It's interesting that back there, he changed one word. He did not call us his treasure. If you read this in Matthew 13, you'll understand why. Because when he says that there was a man walking in the field and he found a treasure, he says he sold all that he had to buy the treasure, but he had to leave the treasure in the field. It wouldn't basically come with him. He couldn't take it. So we know the treasure that he's mentioning there is Israel, a man walking in the field with Jesus. He came unto his own first, and his own refused him. In that parable in in Matthew chapter 13, we quickly recognize the treasure left in the field is based on Exodus 19, 5, and 6, that Israel was that treasure of a people, but they refused him. The next parable is the parable of the pearl of great price, and it says there was a merchant man seeking a pearl. And when he found it, he sold all that he had and he bought it. And he took possession of the pearl. We realize, what's he telling us? That Israel was the treasure left in the field. The church is the pearl that he took possession of. 
The uniqueness of the pearl was that it was a, it was a stone that the Jews wouldn't deal with because it, of how it was formed. It was formed in the muck and the mire of the ocean where a particle of sand would pierce the side of an oyster. And out of that pierced side, the oyster would streak it with blood and with water to, in this mucus and form the pearl. But the oyster had to die for the pearl to be discovered. And we begin to understand this powerful symbolism that God is establishing about that pearl being the church and how it was formed out of this pierced side and how it was formed out of the blood and how it was formed out of the water. But the uniqueness of the pearl was that the more you rub a pearl, the more lustrous it becomes. The more it's used, the more it, the contact it has, the more lustrous it becomes. But you break that pearl, you divide that pearl, and what happens? It's worthless. We were not designed to be divided. God didn't form the church to tolerate any division. No division. Why? Because when we divide, we're worthless. You need to ponder that a little while. In how many places we not only tolerate the division... We take great pride in the division. I'll even say this so that it's heard over the computer. We get asked from time to time, which conferences do we affiliate with the Southern Baptist Convention or the Baptist General Convention of Texas? My response is not one I guess it would be typical. Because I will not stand, I will not align with either group as long as they stay divided. A division is not of God. How do you align when there's a great acknowledgement of the division and the destructive nature of that and tolerate it and say that's a good thing? I honestly can't do it because I read here in these passages that God never intended for us to be divided. There's a whole lot more to that story that needs to be told, and it will be told soon. That pearl was a pearl of great price. He's formed something in us that was designed to be radiantly beautiful. But it had to be formed out of his death, out of his pierced side, so that we could be formed out of the blood for healing and for restoration and for the water, for the cleansing and that which Jesus did. I want to back up to the point that God has given me tonight in the beginning of chapter 2. He lays this down in front of that passage in 9 and 10 that I just read, beginning with verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious... To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builder disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Let me go back to verse 6 and just repeat it once. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. The simple message of tonight is this. And I'm going to address this in one form and then I'll expand just briefly. I deal with a lot of couples. Sometimes I'm only dealing with the man, sometimes only with the woman. But they're coming because of brokenness in a relationship. 
And one of the things that I have discovered in asking them about how their relationship formed, how did the relationship start? And I find this particularly resonating in couples who are maybe in their second relationship because of death or because of divorce or because of difficulties or problems, they find themselves in these moments. And I ask them, what formed your relationship? I'm not surprised, I guess, but I hear words like this. Well, I came out of a broken relationship and, and she came out of a broken relationship, so I guess our relationship was built on the brokenness that both of us had felt. Or I was in this position of need and she was in this position of need, so I guess our mutual needs is what really put us together. I hear all kinds of stories. I hear stories of resentment. I hear stories of rebounds. I hear all kinds of stories about what put us together. And what I've come to realize is that so many relationships, whether it be inside marriage or in friendships or other things where there's a mutual relationship, how many of those have a cornerstone laid that has a name on it other than Jesus. So the cornerstone for the relationship has written across it brokenness. What do you think that building is going to look like if brokenness is the cornerstone? You see, the purpose of the cornerstone was to make sure that everything that came off of it was true. Everything was square. If that cornerstone was properly placed, you could line up everything off of it. If you know geometry, you would understand how you could create the right angles, how you can create everything so that it would be square and structurally sound because of the cornerstone. What happens if that cornerstone has anything written on it other than Jesus? The building is going to be off. And I'm amazed at couples who have been married five years and 10 years and 20 years. And I ask them, what's on that? And they'll say, well, we started in brokenness and brokenness is still the cornerstone. I would encourage you tonight, whether it be in relationships, whether it be in friendships, whether it be between fathers and mothers, whether it be between mothers and children or fathers and children, I would ask you tonight to do what God has done in me through this message and through sharing this so many times, is to ask you tonight to say, what's on that cornerstone of our relationships? What's written there? Look at that again, what it says that it will happen. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him, he that has him as the cornerstone, shall not be confounded, won't be confused. I will say this and try to do it with no judgment, but truth. If I were to go into my backyard and I were to build a brick wall because I needed one, I built it four foot tall and ten foot long. And I stand back and I say, ooh, ooh, that looks good. That is an impressive brick wall. So I get a, a bricker over there, a professional brick mason over there, and he steps back and he says, yeah, that's pretty good. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what do you mean pretty good? I'm standing here looking at the same wall you're looking at, and I think it is remarkable. And he says, yeah, it's not bad. And I'm sure not getting the answer that I want. And I finally asked him, I said, what's wrong with it? One instruction, if you, if you would just go get a piece of string and something to tie on the bottom of it. And he holds this plumb bob up against my wall and all of a sudden I see what he sees. That from the top to bottom I'm two inches off. What did the plumb bob do? It became the truth held up against something that was off. 
If your cornerstone doesn't have Jesus on it, and you have built off of a cornerstone that is slightly off, even the conviction of sin won't be the same. You will not recognize that I am walking a few degrees off, and certain things become acceptable in our life because the cornerstone is laid crooked. For couples who live together who aren't married, again, I'm not saying this in judgment. Please, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. But the reason that they can rationalize that that is true, and it's okay, is because they're looking back at a cornerstone that says brokenness on it. And because it says brokenness, this makes sense. I don't want to be broken anymore. I don't want to hurt anymore. So they look at this cornerstone that's got brokenness on it, and when they hold up their life against that cornerstone, everything looks okay. What would happen immediately if you were to substitute Jesus and drop a new cornerstone in there? What would immediately be recognized in the rest of the building? It's off. And suddenly these things that we've rationalized and held in our head as being acceptable would suddenly look off because the cornerstone is telling me what the, what the plumb bob did, that the life that I've built is strangely off. And it's a sad, somewhat sad commentary because of the complexity of our lives. Many of us, even sitting here tonight, have a different name on the cornerstone than Jesus. Here's what I would encourage you to do. This is the simple message of it. If you recognize tonight that in any relationships you have, that Jesus isn't the cornerstone, and I'm talking about friend to friend, you know, husband to wife, father to child, mother to child. If Jesus isn't the cornerstone, then you need to, I need, we need, at a particular moment, marked with time and place and relationships. We need to go before the Father. We need to go to God in prayer and say, God, I only want one cornerstone in all relationships, and I want it to be Jesus Christ. And mark in that moment that that prayer is offered, that request is made, because what is God's answer going to be? Guaranteed. Yes. There would never be another answer. If you were to ask God to put in in place the cornerstone that he has chosen, his elect, someone that's precious to him, if you'll put that cornerstone in, if you ask him to do it, I guarantee you he's going to do it. But because of the reality of spiritual warfare, if you don't mark that prayer down and, and hear his yes, if you don't mark it down with time and place and relationships, who was there when you asked, what was going on, what day was it, what time of the day was it, If you don't become that specific with that prayer and mark down when God said yes and that cornerstone was laid, then you'll never have anything to fight back with. Because when Satan comes and says, no, it's the same old cornerstone, if you can't say back to him, no, on this day in February, February the 8th, if that's what today is, at 645 at night, with these people present, I put this before the Lord and he said yes, and I guarantee you I can use that to fight with every single day as the beginning of spiritual warfare. Because when Satan comes and says, no, I can by declaration of faith say, yes, God did. I I ask him to set Jesus as my cornerstone. He has done it and I will hear nothing else. But it's hard to fight when we don't have that specific moment marked in time and place. I would encourage you tonight, examine those relationships. See which name is written on the cornerstone of what you have built. Because even in the religious world, especially maybe even in the religious world, the church can be put on that cornerstone. So some of the things that we justify, 
some of the things that we hold in our heart, some of the things that we have deemed to be so honorable and honest before God are off because Jesus isn't on there. The name of my church is, or the name of my pastor, or the name of my denomination is on that cornerstone and it's setting a little bit askew. But because it is, we can rationalize the way the things that we're doing that have absolutely nothing to do with God and somehow find justification for them and say, God, I have one desire. Put Jesus as the cornerstone of my life and let everything true to it. And he'll do it. And suddenly the things that are slightly off will become as obvious as holding up a plumb bob against something that I thought was pretty good. And God say, yeah, but hold the truth up against it. Let the cornerstone tell you a story. And suddenly the realities of our life will become very, very clear. What I've tolerated, accepted. I can't accept anymore. Not in others, in myself. Those things that I have held to be so righteous and so right, suddenly they become the shade of gray. And I realize in the name of something, I have marched one degree off for a long ways. And now I'm really, really off course. Let that form in you tonight. I don't know why God changed it. I don't know why he went from Exodus to to 1 Peter. I don't know why he brought the resonating reality of this cornerstone and how it must be this pivoting place of our life. You set that square, everything else will build. And every time you venture off, I guarantee you, you'll be able to see it and and the Holy Spirit will nudge us back into place so that what's built begins to be the demonstration of God's glory. The world will look at us, not feel judgment, but see right before the Father, to see what was supposed to be built. Why does the world not care much about God? Well, they might care a lot about God. Why don't they care much about Christians? It's because they keep watching us set a cornerstone that's slightly off and building something that doesn't look very godly, doesn't look very holy, doesn't look very true. And they watch us fight against each other, the division that we tolerate, the difficulties that we accept, the love that we fail to show or give, and the healing that doesn't come the forgiveness that we long for and can't receive. And they watch this building being built slightly off where the value system looks a whole lot like the world and not a whole lot like God. And they don't see any difference. You put Jesus as the cornerstone, I promise you, they will see the difference. They'll see it in our lives individually, in our relationships collectively, and what God builds in a kingdom. They'll recognize the difference if Jesus is the cornerstone. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I just pray that this word would just penetrate the hearts, Lord, as you have intended it. You know the target. And I know, Lord, it's a good word for all of us. But if you're going to change it at the minute that you changed it, it has a particular point. It's got a particular place to resonate tonight in, in an individual heart or in the heart of a couple. It has a purpose, and I pray, Lord, that in this moment, that there would be a full release of that truth into that heart. And it would, in this moment, begin to square up. And that they would at least recognize that our relationship was built on something other than a foundation of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone that would make all things true and all things right. I just pray the release of that powerful truth into those hearts, Lord, that you have targeted tonight. Let it be a general word for all of us and let it be encouraging to each one. It has truth in it for every one of us. But, Lord, there's particular hearts. And I pray, Lord, that it would just penetrate tonight in this moment. We just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.